Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. back here again. Um, I first met Josh, uh, well, I met him through Occupy Wall Street in New York City, and we had an online friendship that then turned into an invitation to come to Toronto, and Josh gave a talk at the last location of Center of Gravity. Um, Was that a year ago? More than a year ago? Like a week over a year ago. Okay. Yeah. And uh, um, that talk actually became a phenomenon online in lots of different kinds of activist circles. And uh, um, I know a lot of you were here after that talk. And um, from my perspective, the talk also lit a fire under Josh, uh, giving him more confidence to put together these two threads of um, radical politics and... Buddhism and Buddhist practice. And um, I think we all know that when we practice mindfulness, at first it seems like such an internal practice. You look at all these stories that run through your mind, like films. And uh, then if you carry that practice into everything that you do, you start to see that most of these stories that go through our minds are not even our stories. We've internalized them from... Hollywood and corporations and the way our society constructs our gender and how we deal with money and on and on and on. Um, So I'm always on the hunt for people who are thinking through these things, not just intellectually, but also uh, doing it with their whole life. And so uh, Josh's life inspires me. Um, Josh, well, he doesn't really live in New York, but he's a New Yorker. And... uh, He's kind of a nomad these days. Um, right now, uh, he's nomadic in Christiane's house. So thank you for hosting him while he's here. And uh, it's great to have me back. Um, thank you all for having me back, actually. This space is kind of interesting. I feel like I'm going to be like a, a lawn sprinkler <laughs> doing this, right? Um, I don't want to be all, like, shitty and just, like, look at the people in the middle. Um, yeah, it was, like, a year ago that I was here. Actually, um, as Michael so astutely pointed out last time, I was here on the eve of the, uh, the U.S. elections. And I was actually quite glad to not be in the United States on Election Day. Um, 
and about yeah about three weeks after that um, I left the country again um, my mom lives in southern Europe and um, and I had spent a significant portion of, of last the early part of last year abroad mostly uh, in the Mediterranean both on the European and the Middle Eastern sides and um, I kind of went back to kind of resume some of the relationships and research and, and other sorts of things that I've been doing um, and so uh, I went to Spain for a little while um, I went to England and Sweden, and then I eventually made my way back to Egypt uh, and Palestine um, by way of of a brief stop in Athens. Um, And so what I want to talk about tonight is um, the ways in which uh, my encounters in those spaces, particularly um, in Greece, Egypt, and Palestine, have brought me to reconsider... um, what we think of as, or what gets talked about at least in, in Buddhist circles, as heart practices. Um, mostly because, for me, for the better part of two decades of, of engaging um, with the practice, the heart practices of, of acceptance, forgiveness, spaciousness, all these other sorts of things, um, they've been really challenging for me. Um, I've definitely, and probably still, kind of lean in the direction of sort of wisdom practices because they feel a little safer for me, even where the rigor of them can be challenging. Part of this could be because uh, they feel less emasculating. They feel a little bit more resonant with my own socialization. Um, And perhaps a component of that is that they demand a certain vulnerability. Um... And coming out of radical political movements, um, in certain, I guess you could say certain strata of those movements or certain spaces within those movements, um, vulnerability is kind of (laughs) taboo. We don't like to talk about it. Um, There was a a, a young organizer uh, named Brian Lowe. Um, I used to organize with his sister in D.C., his older sister, uh, when he was like a teenager. And he's become quite an organizing badass. I think he's based in Chicago now. He does a lot of work with um, immigrant labor struggles. Uh, And he wrote a piece for a website called Organizing Upgrade last year that caused quite a storm, actually. Uh, It was called The End of Self-Care. And... um, and it began sort of like self-care is over, put a nail in it, like, and then he, he proceeds to like sort of say, and it, I'm paraphrasing in a sort of like, I don't know, not so um, sympathetic way, although I, I think a lot of what he had to say was, was quite necessary. But he went on to say that look, like self-care is this individualized thing, and it sort of enables us to get off the hook for creating uh, social mechanisms for care social mechanisms for taking care of each other. And oftentimes, we can't even enact those social mechanisms until we deal with certain structural realities. And so, really, like, we should quit dawdling in this sort of self-care narrative uh, and overthrow this shit and then set about the business of enacting these forms of of collective care. 
Um, what I think he gets right about this analysis, and there were plenty of people who came back and pushed back on him about this in, in equally insightful ways, um, but what I think he, get, he got right was that we tend to think about uh, self-care in social movements anyway as uh, sort of like backing up your hard drive. That like it's a parallel device. Uh, that it has a certain optional character to it. That like the CPU or your desktop or your laptop, whatever, can operate on its own autonomously just fine. And periodically it gets mucked up or periodically you need to move some stuff around or whatever. So you do this backup and kind of reset the clock or whatever to, to re-optimize it. And we treat self-care in this way in social movements. Like, you know, we work and we work and we work until we get burnt out or until our relationships become strained or until we hit some sort of crisis or whatever. And then as he sort of uh, patronizingly put it, you know, we check out and do a little bit of yoga um, and to recenter ourselves and come back to things. And I think that this is actually correct. I think that uh, this notion of care, this notion of, of self-maintenance, which in and of itself is, is actually a form of self-formation um, in as much as we, we acquire and take on habits and rhythms and routines and ways of being through this sort of habituation. Um, it's insufficient in that um, it's not as though, uh, as Michael pointed out, that social forces are acting on us periodically, like on Tuesday. Um, you know, and so on Wednesday, we got to, you know, do like some cleanse or something like these things are acting on and speaking through us all the time. Right. And so one of the things I would have liked to have seen done, and perhaps I should have just done it, but I didn't really want to stick my finger in those waters at that time. because It was kind of a volatile debate that was happening, um, in, in movement circles was maybe inverting the practice or the question from what are adequate or, or uh, useful modes or notions of self-care toward an ethic of care of the self. And when I move those words around, I'm not just like playing refrigerator magnet poetry. I'm, I'm making specific reference to a concept that some of you might be familiar with. Um, in the, uh, the major... <coughs> ideas that um, the historian and philosopher Michel Foucault is known for are, are a particular articulation of power and how power is exercised and how power operates. Um, and what he articulated um, was, or tried to illustrate, was a shift from a particular exercise of power that had been predominant in, in a particular part of the world at a particular point in history and another uh, form of power that uh, we shifted into at a certain point in history. The first of those is what's called the sovereign exercise of power. It's manifest in something like a, a monarchy, right? That the king is the sovereign and the king exercises power over subjects. And the sort of uh, visual symbol of this for Foucault especially was the scaffold. That it was always this spectacular thing of like... Um, hangings or torture. In fact, the opening four pages of uh, his, his book, Discipline and Punish, 
will probably fuck you up for life. Like, it's this description of this guy, uh, Damien the Regicide. He was a guy who tried to kill a king. I think he might have even successfully killed the king. I'm not sure. But it's an actual archival account of how he was tortured and executed. And it, like, puts, like, Saw and all that to shame. And it's, it's actually super creepy. Um, and then a shift to what he calls disciplinary power. Uh, which was for him sort of began in and percolated out of the prison. The important thing to understand about these two things is that in the first, well, in every case, the exercise of power was justified by our or by subjects inhabiting what was called the, the sphere of the unpermitted, right? In the sovereign, it was a binary. There was a line between the permitted and the unpermitted. Provided you stayed within the permitted, you were largely left alone. Power didn't intervene on you. Uh, You weren't tortured. You weren't hanged. You weren't whatever. Um, In fact, you know, he goes into detail about how black markets and all these other sorts of things operated within the sphere of the permitted. Um, Within the disciplinary framework, it's a different uh, visualization altogether. We can sort of picture a node like a hub in the middle of a wheel. And that is the permitted. That's the sphere of the permitted. That's where you are not intervened upon. And in this formulation, all of us exist at some distance from this. Nobody actually exists within it. And thus, the intervention of power is always justified. It's always happening. And so, the interventions becomes so intense and so constant that we we pick up on them ourselves. Uh, We start to enact them ourselves. Uh, A really great example of this was, um, I I literally just got back into the country last week, and um, I uh, was passing through an airport in Europe, I think it was in Dublin, um, and uh, we had passed the normal security check where you do, like, you know, the x-ray for your bags and you go through the metal detector and all that stuff. Incidentally, outside of the United States, you're not typically expected to take your shoes off. It's, like, a new thing, and it's pretty specific to the U.S. There are very few other places. Americans, almost without fail, will take their shoes off, <laughs> whether they're asked to or not. Um, at this one check, we had already passed through the major checkpoint. We were going through another. It was just an x-ray of bags. There was no metal detector, no nothing. And there's a guy announcing, you don't have to take your things out of your pockets. Like, you know, whatever. And here are the Americans all taking their shoes off and, like, stripping their belts out and everything, right? Like, they're not even being asked. And they're doing this. And it's, like, a huge inconvenience and a huge pain in the ass and whatever. And it's, like, and they're still undertaking it. They're still doing it. And it's because they've internalized this behavior, Right? Um, this is not just true of such obvious stark examples. This is true of how we perform gender. This is true of how we perform class. This is true of how we perform any number of, of sorts of things about ourselves and how we show up to the world so as to minimize the intervention of power, so as to put ourselves as much as possible, as close as possible to the permitted, the sphere of the permitted so as to be left alone. Care of the self. Well, at the time when, this, when Foucault articulated this, a lot of feminists and Marxists and all these other sorts of people who were interested in social change, we're talking about uh, late 70s, mid-late 70s, 
um, started saying, like, well, that's a really fatalistic view of the world. Like, it kind of sounds like there's no hope, there's no agency. What's the point of resisting if, if power is just exercised in this totalizing way and it's always acting on us and we're always in the sphere of the unpermitted and we're always being intervened on? Where does one find agency within this? And so in his last few books, uh, he tried to address this, and he was, he was actually dying of AIDS at the time, so he kind of rushed them. They're not his best writing. But um, what he starts to try and stake out is what he calls care of the self, technologies of the self. That the forms of resistance that one engages in when constantly being intervened in, or intervened on in these ways, is uh, self-formation. Not just around pragmatic considerations or what feels intuitive in the moment or what feels necessary in the moment or what we feel compelled to do in the moment, but actually conscious, deliberate um, ways of being. Uh, what he, he calls them, uh, he calls it sometimes the aesthetics of the self. Um, as in, uh, the, he calls it, as well, he draws off the Greek, he calls it like ars erotica, like the erotic arts. That it's, it's a way of living one's life as a work of art, rather than as a sort of expedient practicality in response to power or whatever. This is where I think one finds a really deep and, and, and sort of productive intersection between radical political agency and Buddhist practice. Because what is meditation practice other than the cultivation <coughs> of this erotic art, the cultivation of deliberate modes of being, the cultivation of what the Buddha called going against the stream, right? It's doing away with our attachment to these performances, doing away with our attachment to uh, even at times... Uh, notions of safety, right? Things that are familiar. Um, you know, there's a... I'm sure anybody in here who's attended a meditation class has had somebody say, you know, if you're not aware of the fact that you're having thoughts, you might be inclined to believe them. Um, that is a deeply political utterance, <laughs> right? I mean, if, if you're not aware of the fact that you're an Islamophobic jerk, you might be inclined to believe certain things about Muslims. Um if you're not aware of how masculinity speaks through you, you might be inclined to believe any number of quite unfounded assumptions um, and act on them. And so, in social movements, this idea that we can just periodically check out, do a fast or watch some Breaking Bad or do some yoga or, you know, whatever. Go rock climbing, whatever. All these things, nothing wrong with them. But the idea that these will amount to any sort of meaningful intervention on these social forces acting on us is, is pretty silly. It's pretty delusional. Um, it's a nice way to maybe sort of like dial things back a little bit so we can go right back to the same repetitive sort of uh, drudgery, the same disappointments, the same failures, the same wounds, the same frustrations, uh, the same doubts, all the things that come from being part of, of any sort of social process, 
whether it's movement building, whether it's parenting, whether it's a romantic relationship, whether it's career, school, whatever, like simply checking out and not grappling with those things is not actually going to meaningfully change our relationship with them. Um, And reading all of this and thinking about all of this, I saw a sort of uh, a dualism emerging of this position that, that Brian had taken up of like, let's just, let's just cowboy up and do away with all of this silly sentimental talk about self-care. And other people sort of pushing back and saying, no, actually, um, my juice cleanse and my yoga and whatever are, you know, really necessary for dealing with, you know, legitimate sorts of experiences of oppression and marginalization and trauma and whatever. And I felt that both of these were really strikingly inadequate and missing certain points and in many ways speaking past each other. Um, And then I went abroad (laughs) again and, um, and began talking to people who I had cultivated relationships with sufficient to have somewhat candid conversations about, um, pretty dire political situations. Um, I mean, it doesn't get much more dire than Palestine. It doesn't get much more dire than the petty humiliations of of occupation and apartheid. Um, It doesn't get much more dire than, you know, what was heating up in Cairo prior to June 30th. Um, And certainly, it doesn't get much more dire than, you know, teetering on the brink of fascism in Greece under austerity in which, you know, people are abandoning their kids and all sorts of other really ugly stuff. Um, One could say, one could argue halfway meaningfully that I shouldn't even think about having conversations about uh, care of the self with people facing such such dire circumstances, um, that these were luxuries. You know, that we were talking about life or death scenarios in these particular places, in these particular struggles. And what I found instead was that more than anyone in my life, these people were grappling with these very questions. The best example of which, and this is, this is cutting against, I think, a lot of assumptions in social movements. You know, I think there's a real tendency for us to project onto other parts of the world what it means to be in these situations and what that looks like and what that demands of people and, and, and what is or isn't off limits. Um, after uh, Mohamed Morsi was thrown out of office in Egypt on June 30th, um, I immediately contacted uh, some folks I knew who had taken up in, uh, in Tahrir and set up tents there and checked in with them and said, you know, what's going on? What's it look like? And I did some interviews and stuff. And um, at first it was like, well, you know, we're trying to just keep uh, Mubarak supporters from creeping back into the movement and kind of dialing us back to to pre-2011. And a few days later, as the story started coming out about um, Islamists being rounded up by the army, and jailed and summarily executed and beaten in the streets uh, and disappeared. 
uh, and even massacred in sit-ins. You know, there was a, a really, really ugly massacre outside of prayers one day where I think something like, I don't remember, some really obscene number of people um, were just gunned down wholesale. Um, and I checked in with some of these friends, one of whom um, was a, is a young guy who has been part of the movement since you know the early days, since January 25th. Um, and had been in clashes that involved people firing automatic weapons at him. He had had friends killed by the army on Mohammed Mahmoud Street after uh, after Mubarak was thrown out. Um, obviously, a guy carrying around some real trauma, some real unresolved stuff, um, as anybody in his position would be. And I started talking to him. I said, "Well, how do you feel about?" Um, the way the military is handling the Islamists. And he said, you know, fuck them. I don't, I don't feel anything when I see dead Islamists. Like, uh, he's like, I wish I could say differently. But um, I don't feel anything for them. They, were, you know, they murdered my friends. They, you know, they've committed things. He had just been in Upper Egypt uh, and watched Islamists throw like a 13-year-old kid out of like the fifth floor of a building because he had been, you know, protesting against the Muslim Brotherhood. And he said, I don't feel anything for these people. Um, But he didn't say it in this like smug, rigid, unrepentant way. Because what he followed it with was, I said, well, you know, it's the army that's carrying this out. And the army has killed friends of yours as well. And the army's not your friends. Um, how does it feel that the the intervention of power that's taking place to uh, to sort of you know clamp down on Islamists or clamp down on the Brotherhood is not really a corrective in which you have a whole lot of agency, and, and it could come after you next. And he said, "Yeah, I know." And even worse, as we're in this moment of, you know, radical potential and radical transformation and radical sort of reconstruction. I feel like this hatred um, is going to cost me my humanity. That, you know, I don't want to be this person. I don't want to be this person moving forward in this moment. Um... That was a conversation I really didn't expect to have with somebody in his position. That somebody in this moment who just probably 24 hours prior had been shot at was concerned about how an attachment to a particular idea or a particular emotion uh, might cost him his humanity. It seemed like the very sorts of things that in the conversations my peers had been having was being dismissed as a sort of luxurious sentimentality. You know, in in dire, challenging situations, we don't have the luxury of cultivating our humanity or thinking about these sorts of internal, mushy sorts of things. And when I spent time with that over the next few days, started to think about the sorts of selves that we bring to struggle sorts of cells that we bring to movements and why they matter. And I think there's a, there's a fashion around 
self-formation and subjectivity formation in social movements that it's safe to think about it in certain terms and not so safe and maybe even taboo to think about it in other, in other terms. For instance, in terms that have to do with uh, identity-based oppressions, we can talk about you know, sort of stripping out white supremacist socialization or stripping out patriarchal socialization, <laughs> stripping out class, uh, class socialization. And we can talk about self-formation in this way uh, quite comfortably uh, in most instances. We run into defensiveness from, from people who are less exposed to that sort of analysis, but it's not really uh, the sort of thing that's really going to draw ridicule in our immediate sort of peer group. Um, thinking about self-formation in terms of forgiveness, in terms of acceptance, in terms of the things that we are going to carry around in the form of resentments or attachments uh, or emotional commitments is not necessarily something that's taken too seriously. Um, and here I was having a conversation with someone who said, this could be, this, this tipping point between you know, being committed to resisting a military state or hating Islamists could be uh, a really critical choice. And that brought me back to the meaning of these heart practices you talked about. And where my own resistance to practices around forgiveness, practices around acceptance, practices around loving kindness, self-forgiveness, all these other sorts of things, where I still had baggage around these of them being sort of sentimental attachments. Too, they're, they're too wishy-washy or vulnerable or fluffy for, for meaningful, effective, consequential uh, social movement purposes. And with help from other people, conversations with other people, particularly um, folks that are involved with the Dharma punks in New York, um, started to realize that many of my attachments around those things uh, and my hang-ups and my baggage had to do with um, the idea that I'm a superhero. Thinking about something like forgiveness in terms of it being something that we do to or for somebody else, that it's, some, it's an act that we carry out on an external surface, as it were. We forgive somebody for something. That this idea that something that we undertake even silently in our minds, maybe not even something that we express or say out loud, is actually going to meaningfully affect somebody else is ridiculous. We're just not that powerful. It's not an act that we undertake for somebody else's sake. Um, perhaps it offers some comfort if uttered, uttered. But ultimately, like at the core of it, what we're often afraid of in undertaking something like forgiveness is the fear that it, it makes us vulnerable, that it exposes us to being 
wounded again or trampled again or violated in some way again. As though our simply deciding to forgive somebody makes any difference in that. It's not as though we're giving somebody license. They have that license whether or not we undertake that. They have that agency and that ability to wound and harm us regardless of whatever little mental exercise we undertake. It's not about them. The forgiveness is actually probably a lot less about interpersonal relationships as much as it is the sentiment that the Buddha was expressing in, is it the Raft Sutta? Is that what it's called? The Sutta about the Raft? The purpose of the Raft? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So, for those not familiar or who haven't dabbled in it in a while, the Buddha gave this sermon about um, the Dharma being a raft. And its function is to get you from one side of the river to the other. And that upon arriving on the other side, um, to carry that raft around on land is a bit stupid. Uh, It's not what it's for. Um, Our self-protection, whatever form it takes, it can take really healthy forms, and it can take really destructive, corrosive um, forms that shut us down and make us less dynamic and less mobile, um, can ultimately be that raft that we carry around. Uh, It can be the thing that hampers us in candidly and uh, unvarnishedly uh, addressing what's right in front of us and addressing what's actually meaningful and what's actually critical. The forgiveness is not about what we do for others. It's about the self that we want to show up to the world as. It's about what we want to be carrying around. Um, and it's about the selves that we're going to be to constitute new possibilities and new worlds. I think for, for people who, you know, get their asses kicked in social movements and get beaten and um, oftentimes are on the losing end of various encounters and various critical moments, the impulse uh, to feel in control of anything is really, really compelling. It's really almost um, impossible to, to succumb to. Um, even if it's just a cheap psychological wage of like, I mean, even at this moment underneath this very preppy button down, I'm wearing a shirt that says ACAB, which is like the international language of all cops are bastards. Um, and, you know, like there's a, there's a sense of control that comes from that, right? A sense of like, I'm in control of whether or not I forgive you. I'm in control of whether or not I give you permission to do this thing that you'll do whether I give you permission or not. That this attachment becomes a real, uh, a real burden, a real albatross, and and can cloud judgment in very profound, deep ways. Um, the ways in which we show up to the world are conditioned by this. The ways in which we manage, observe, intervene against, 
social forces that intervene on and speak through us are conditioned by this. Um, this, to me, seemed like uh, what was missing from these conversations about self-care was that what was being discussed was on what cycle or timeline should we neglect all of this stuff that we're accruing and all of this baggage and all of this conditioning and socialization we're accruing and on what cycle should we put it all down for a few minutes and go to the gym rather than in what ways do we cultivate an ongoing and constant critical relationship with these things? And even to the extent that we can pose those questions, we often pose them in this sort of like wisdom side of the practice, of this intellectual acknowledgement of, well, yeah, I, I want to have this critical engagement with these things on a day-to-day basis. The problem is that it's not, it's not an intellectual subscription It's not something that we just check a box on and set an intention and say, I'm going to do this. Because this conditioning and these uh, these modes of being have somatic uh, implications. They manifest in the body. Um, Everyone here can ride a bike, right? So if I say, uh, if we all got together and wrote instructions for someone on how to ride a bike, we all know that that would be inadequate, right? Because no set of instructions that we could come up with would actually prevent somebody from falling on their face. Because that's not an intellectual process. Learning to ride a bike is something that we do in the body. It's a matter of response and observation and learning how to modulate gravity and weight and movement and all of these things together. And it's something that you learn in the body. It's not something that you can just sort of read a set of instructions and go, I got it. This, whether we acknowledge it or not, this is what meditation practice is. Right? Like sitting down and sitting still and saying, whatever happens, whatever weird traumatic inner monologue stuff I have going on, whatever physical discomfort I have going on, I'm going to actually observe that and meet it where it is and respond to it in an appropriate and skillful way. That, that is a training. I mean, the Buddha talks about it as a training, but it is a training. It's like going to the gym for being in the world. That learning how to responsibly and skillfully and artfully intervene against the exercise of power, the socialization of power, our impulse to control, whether that comes from a place of privilege or a place of arming oneself against uh, subordination and, and domination. Those are all things that we do in the body to the extent that we fail to do them in the body is the extent to which we're really just phoning it in. And in that moment, in that conversation, with that friend in Cairo, that was what I heard. That's what I heard him saying. It was like, intellectually, I know that this is going to be my undoing, 
that this hatred is going to really unmake everything that I care about and could cost me everything that I've been in the streets for. But in my body, I, I just can't. I can't get there. I can't do it. And I know that it could cost me everything. And so in social movements, when we see Buddhist practice put into conversation with, with tactics or strategies for social transformation or radical social aspirations, it very typically stays outside of that somatic sphere. It very rarely actually gets into what, what happens in the body. Like, where does our pulse spike? Where does our throat constrict? Where uh, do we feel tension? All these sorts of things. These things drive how we respond to things. When we get defensive, when we're called out for shit, that happens in the body. Uh, when we feel fear, that happens in the body. And so what we do in being gentle, in being tender, in being accepting, is not, and, and in forgiving, even just quietly, silently, letting go of a defense or a hostility or a rigidity or contempt or whatever. What's happening there is not a passive resignation to the intolerable, which is the subtext of, of what I find in radical political circles of like, you know, whether it's me wearing an ACAB t-shirt or like, you know, people um, engaging in sort of overcompensating performances of anger or whatever, that's about a fear of inadvertently rolling over for the intolerable. It's fear of, of not seeming fierce enough in the face of things that one ought to be fierce with. And what I want to suggest is that while being on the cushion in and of itself is not sufficient uh, for, for meaningful social transformation. It is, in fact, a training in being absolutely fierce that cultivating skillfulness around responding to fear, around responding to not knowing, around responding to hurt and wounds and resentments is a deep, act of fierceness. It is that care of the self. It is choosing a different aesthetics of being and a different technology of being than is being sort of put to us or put upon us. It's not merely a command. It's not like, you know, a cop telling you, get on the sidewalk. That's not the only form of coercion or being compelled. Um... There's really interesting stuff around uh, like the the Oedipal framework that was put on people with psychoanalysis. They said like, did which came first? It was sort of a chicken and egg scenario. Which came first, the prohibition or the desire? <coughs> and to what extent did pro did the prohibition produce desire? Like, I mean, prior to being told that incest was wrong, did anybody in this room really feel the need to like get down with their siblings or their parents? I didn't, right? But maybe by being told that that was prohibited, I got the idea that 
wow, if I need to be prohibited from doing this, then deep down I must really want to do it. And in so becoming preoccupied with that, completely block out any number of range of possible desires or forms of agency, simply because I want to deal with what I can't do. That can shape social transformation. Like, is fighting in the streets with the cops necessarily like the effective strategic thing to do in a given moment? Or is it just what I feel like doing because I'm not allowed to? These acts of tending to ourselves and optimizing ourselves moment to moment, whether it's popular to acknowledge it, um, whether it feels taboo or like it might invite ridicule or like it might, um, might make us look overly sentimental or weak, are deep, deep, fierce acts of resistance. And when I sent the description for this to Michael, um, I titled it uh, Gentle with Each Other, Dangerous Together. Um, Does anybody know where that comes from? The civil rights movement in the uh, the 50s and 60s produced, um, I don't remember if it was a pamphlet, a poster, or what. It may have come from Ella (coughs) Baker, I'm not sure. But... um, it had this headline on it. It was an image, I think, of a, of a young man or woman. And, and, and above it, it said, be gentle with each other so you can be dangerous together. That's some pretty deep wisdom. And I think there are very obvious sorts of manifestations of this if you've ever been involved in, you know, organizing. Um, the degree to which we are not gentle with each other is precisely the degree to which we are not dangerous together. Um, I think that that can be extrapolated much more broadly. The degree to which we are not gentle with ourselves and not gentle with each other is precisely the degree to which we are not threatening. And if you think about people in this world who are part of populations that other people would like to see disappear entirely... When, when you live having a war waged on you, simply surviving to the next day is an act of resistance. And simply being gentle enough with each other so as to survive to the next day is an act of collective resistance. And so I think we need to take very seriously what we do in this room. Not just in terms of self-care, of like rebooting hard drive so that you know tomorrow we'll feel a little fresher or a little little less burdened or whatever but so that we get really 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 tight about intervening against these narratives and intervening against these attachments and intervening against anything that might take the form of delusion that might inhibit us from candidly dealing with what's right in front of us Uh, I think that's the core of the Buddhist teaching. And I think that whether we approach social movements as Buddhists or as practitioners or whatever or not, that is the lesson of of the most (laughs) dire uh, moments of resistance. 
It's the aspiration. We want a world in which we can be gentle together and gentle with each other and in which people are gentle with us. But even in the moment of resistance, even in moments of confrontation, the practice is ultimately grounded in being gentle with each other. Letting go of the hurt we carry around, letting go of the anger we carry around, and letting go of the doubts and fears that we carry around so we can get down with what's real and get down to business. Um, that's not... That's not sentimental. That's not a luxury. It's a necessity. So I wanted to encourage everyone to take that very, very seriously. Not as a, a self-maintenance but as a cultivation of, of ferocity in being in the world. And I wanted to actually have a lot more time for discussion than last time because I felt like I went on forever last year. And, uh, and I know that this is a bit more provocative than what I brought last time, so I wanted to, to be able to engage with all of you.